Welcome to Mind Rolling. Mind Rolling podcast is back. And I'm back with, uh, this is Raghu Marcus, and I'm back with David Silver, who has... Hello. Say hi. Hello, everyone. Um, David uh, is going to introduce our uh, guest today, who is a uh, an incredibly uh, rich, has just rich, rich things to relate to us all. And oh, yeah. uh, I'm not I'm not going to give away anything because I want David to really be right. the one here. So go ahead. Well, I, I guess today I'm real thrilled about this is Dr. Dennis McKenna, who is by his own description a botanist and a neuroscientist. But those two words, you know, are kind of one or one and a half dimensional. Uh, to describe what he's done in his life is, you know, the words don't are not, are never going to be adequate. But basically, he and his brother Terence McKenna. Uh, are were in Ter- Terence's case because he's no longer with us, were just preeminent investigators and articulators of the nature of psychedelic reality, and possibly more important, of the actual nature of psychedelics, particularly psilocybin and uh, ayahuasca, but also the others. And he's given us the gift over the years of describing to us just what this stuff is as best you can, what it does to us the benefits of it, the dangers of it, the light side, the dark side. Welcome, Dr. McKenna. We're happy to have you with us. Well, thank you so much. I am I'm very pleased to be here. Well, the very first thing I want to say, and I would like you to do it, Dennis, is to uh, wish your late brother a happy birthday, because today is his birthday. You should do that. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, he's been on my mind. Um, uh, of course, he's always kind of on my mind, but today is a special day. Terence would have been um, 67 today had he lived. So a lot, and he died at 53. So that's a lot of water under the bridge that he was not around in in physical space to to experience. You know, and I often I look back and wonder. What would he make of where we are now? What would he think of what's gone down since he crossed over, or however you want to think of it? Well, it's interesting you should say that, because in, in your book, which we should introduce right now, Brotherhood of the Abyss, or the Abyss, the Brotherhood of the Abyss. No, uh, no, you... no, 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 let's get it right. Brotherhood yeah. of the Screaming Abyss. Oh, I'm the, so sorry. The Screaming Abyss. <laughs> the no, the screaming's really important. I don't know why. It's yeah, the screaming's really important. Because <laughs> they, they won't be able to find my website if they look, you know, and I won't be able to get it on Amazon, and they'll, they'll just be, our audience will just be totally confused. So. Okay, <laughs> we, will, we will reintroduce it. The yeah. Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. What an amazing title. One of the yeah. things you, you said he hasn't been around to see much of this, Terence, but you do say at one point in the book that he kind of knew the way it was going to move. Uh, it's almost as if he, if he dropped in on us now in 2013, he wouldn't be that surprised by what's going on. And as he a start, would, let's talk yeah. about that futurism in both of you and your predictions and so on. Well, he, yeah, he would not be that surprised. In fact, he would be, if anything, I think he'd be bemused. And I, I think he would say, well, you know, what did I tell you? And, you know, he had a remarkable, I don't know if it was insight or 
uh, or or just got lucky, but he had an ability to imagine the future and how it might be, and uh, uh, you know, and and as a result of that, his talks. I mean, most of his talks. And when he was really at the height of his career, it was late 80s, early 90s. And yet you listen to these things on YouTube now and so on. And they could have been done yesterday. I mean, they are just that timely. And I think that's partly why they appeal so much to a new generation. I mean, I mean, most I, I get students all the time who, you know, had to be in diapers when Terrence was doing his public thing. You know, and yet they come up to me and say, Terrence has influenced my life so much. I've everything I've learned, I've learned thanks to him. And I mean that's that's an incredible tribute. So so Terrence had an ability to uh sort of articulate ideas in a way that still resonates very much. And uh and that's wonderful. You know, I mean I mean the ideas are are fresh as fresh today as they were 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, hats off, hats, hats off to that. I mean, I mean, you know, insight and, and philosophy should be timeless. And it seems that he's, he's, he's managed to achieve this kind of, you know, ghost-like presence on the net, you know, mm. <laughs> And I think I think he would be I, I think it would be like I say I think he'd be amused and and delighted. I mean he's still very much part of the of the social conversation, the cultural conversation about these issues. Even though you know I mean he's got so much information out there, he's not able to participate interactively. But for everything that comes up, he has something useful to say. Usually, mm, if you can yeah. just if you could just dig it out of the the data web, you yeah. know. By the way, I want everybody to know that it's uh, Terrence's birthday, but we had no idea, and we, I mean Dave and I, uh, and, and just were in conversation, email back and forth through a friend with Dennis, and this just, this date was, uh, there was a bunch of different uh, ideas, let's do it in the next couple of weeks or whatever, and I said this date without knowing that. Mm -hmm. So really, happy happy birthday, Terrence and uh, 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 Dave. Why don't you let's get into the meat of uh, well, uh, yeah. of this. Well, let's you know what we do in our, our podcast a lot, Dennis is is we we try to go back to origins of passion, of of interest, of devotion, and so on. Okay. And in your case, you know, you describe in the book, you say that Terrence and yourself were big picture people from the start. Big picture yeah. people. So right. let's let's go back a little bit and see what the stimulants were for both of you to do such really, really amazing work. Well, I think um, you know there were there were uh, multiple influences in our childhood. A big one was science fiction. You know, I would have to say, and that that really has to do with uh, this our preoccupation with the future. And with things, you know, edgy and kind of out of the ordinary. I mean, that was a big, a big driver of curiosity. And and also, I think, I think curiosity itself. You know, we were just curious about things. And I mean, I I went into uh, science uh, 
and Terrence never really practiced science, but we were both fascinated with it. And, uh, and we had this complimentary, you know, sort of complimentary view of phenomena, and we were both quite interested in it. Terrence was more of a skeptic of science. I was, ne and I was always, I mean, I, I practiced science, but I, I never necessarily just bought into it uh, because actually it's the job of a scientist to, to question everything. Uh, but also to have curiosity, you know, curiosity is what drives science or should be what drives science. And, uh, and we had that going for us. And, and I also have to, to credit our father because he was, he was also a curious guy, although, you know, and he would bring home fate magazine and this kind of thing. And he was interested in, in stuff that I don't think he was talking to his buddies at the, at the Saturday morning coffee clatch down at the cafe. I don't think these things were coming up. These were things that he kept to himself, but he was interested. He was a curious man. And, and, and so we, we caught up on that, even though he was a great pains to deny my father was, you know, came out of the World War II, probably traumatized like a lot of people were. I mean, I mean, whether they actually had post-traumatic stress syndrome or not, everybody took that post-war experience with them and they had to somehow deal with that. And, and uh, many people, including my dad, was, uh, you know, very invested in the idea that I just want to be one of the herd. I just want to settle down and have a family and have a normal, ordinary life. You know, so he was in. He was uh, he was invested in uh, essentially denying what was unique and interesting about him. But you know, we weren't fooled. Uh, Terry and I weren't fooled. We knew he was more interesting than even he knew, and. Uh, you know, in a, in a way, it's a pity that we couldn't, we couldn't, you know, when, 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 when we got older, when we got to be teenagers and the whole psychedelic thing came along and all that, you know, that created a great rift between my father and, and us. And uh, it became difficult to talk to him about that stuff, about psychedelics. I mean, he, we couldn't really have that conversation. You know, because in his mind, this was just dope, you know, and we were becoming, we were in danger of becoming dope fiends and, and addicts and all that. And, you know, he just totally misunderstood what it was all about. We, he couldn't really have that conversation. And, you know, and, and then the psychedelics as well were, you know, uh, so bound up in the social turmoil of the time and the, and the rebellion of that generation and all that. But that wasn't really what drove our curiosity in psychedelics. I mean, it was, it was part of the context, but we, we weren't taking psychedelics or interested in psychedelics in order to shock our parents. You know, that was the least of it. When did we you were, first take psychedelics? And what was that like? What was the first experiences like? Uh, the first experience uh, that the the first time I actually took a psychedelic was uh, when I took Morning Glory seeds, and that probably would have been 1965. Mm. Um, 
uh, or yeah, maybe 1965 or 66 when, you know, it came out, it came out in the media that, you know, these morning glory seeds that you could buy in any, any garden shop, any seed store contained these lysergic acid derivatives and, uh, that you know, you you could take morning glory seeds and 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 have a psychedelic experience. Well, here we were. I mean, we were in a small town where we couldn't get anything like that, but you could go down to the garden store and buy this stuff. So so I tried morning glory seeds, and I didn't have any idea what I was doing, and it wasn't a very, it wasn't much of a trip. Um, you know, it, it really didn't do much but make me sick. And right. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a real psychedelic experience until a, a year after that. And that would be the summer of 1967, which is, you know, it memorialized in, in uh, countercultural history. That's the summer of love in San Francisco, right? That was the height mm -hmm. of the whole thing. And I went out to Berkeley where my brother was by that time he was uh he was uh about to start to the university there and and for some reason you know don't ask me my dad and mom let me go out to berkeley to you know the dope capital of the world <laughs> uh in the summer of 67 with my good friend uh, uh bob uh, and we went out there, and we were there a few weeks, and uh, uh, we were getting into it. But we had uh, so that's that was, where you experienced that was, uh, uh, that LSD. Was our first experience with LSD, yeah, in yeah. Berkeley in '67. That's right. Uh, that's where I was. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just a little at the end of yeah. that '67, yeah. early '68. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, and it wasn't the, it wasn't anything like what we expected, but it was quite an impactful experience. And I came back. Terence had by that time, you know, he he had discovered DMT, and mm. uh, and the summer before, uh, when he and his girlfriend visited me in Paonia, Colorado, this little town, they turned me on to uh, cannabis for the first time, as you know, if you've read the book, and, and, and discussed DMT, but they didn't have any DMT. And, and, and it was like, it was like, you know, in hushed tones, right? It was like, this is the ultimate metaphysical reality pill, right? Even though it's not a pill, right? You, you smoke mm -hmm. it, but, yeah, right. but he, but it was like, you know, it was almost too much to, to really discuss. It was like discussing, you know, the, the alchemical mysteries or something, you know, it was really in reverent tones that he, that he talked about it. Well, and, and so when I went, to Berkeley in 67, um, you know, DMT was around, but it was very rare. And it had this reputation of being, you know, something extraordinary. And, uh, uh, but Terrence had worked the, the network and, and he had some. And so uh, I didn't take it in the summer of 67, but I brought some back with me. 
And Terrence, you know, Terrence said, you know, you need you need to take LSD a few more times before you're ready for this, <laughs> which is probably true. <laughs> and and I brought it back with me, and and I did it shortly afterwards. And and the thing is, it was DMT that was really the catalyst for both of us to get very more than casually interested in in psychedelics i mean we we both agreed that it was indeed an order of magnitude uh more significant than even lsd in terms of you know its strangeness and its you know its its properties i mean i mean again harking back to science fiction and, and a preoccupation with other dimensions. And, you know, here was a drug that appeared to open a portal to another dimension. What dimension? We didn't know. <laughs> we had no idea. But it was a dimension completely alien to this dimension. And it was, and this, this reality, you smoke DMT and, and this reality just disappears you know, for uh, for a short time and uh, for ten minutes or so, which seems much longer. I mean, there is no time in the DMT space. It could you have no idea how long has passed, but it appears to open. It appears to put you into a place where this reality is completely obviated, and you're in a totally alien environment. And there are entities there. There appear to be intelligences there that are very happy to see you <laughs> you know it's like what we've been waiting so long we're so happy to, to see you and and they're they're very frenetic they're clown-like they're cartoon-like they're bouncing around they're very very happy i mean terrence uses the metaphor you know bouncing elf machines or bejeweled uh, you know fabergé basketballs and that kind of mm. thing it they're apt but i think that not everyone sees that, but there is this sense of a lot. It's it's like there's this parallel reality, and for a short period of time, you can poke your head into this reality and look around, and there are all these things going on. It's like it's like a you know it's like a transgalactic carnival or something, and it does have that very uh, you know that that feeling of a carnival of a you know a celebration or just an ongoing uh multi-sensory thing you can see these colors and these shapes these three-dimensional hallucinations well you can't tell if they're hallucinations you can't tell whether what you're looking at are machines but they seem to have that property or or organisms or 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 buildings you can't really tell what they are but they have a very uh three-dimensional um frank reality about them mm. and uh and so we were you know it was like what the hell is this i mean this is this is this is something else you know so like I tell people sometimes in, in my talks, it wasn't that it was just the strangest drug we'd ever stumbled across. It was the, the strangest thing we'd ever stumbled across. And, you know, and the fact that it was a drug was uh, kind of coincidental. It was it was a drug, but it was a drug that opened up this world and uh, that was just so strange and yet 
was, you know, uh, I mean, the, the fact that you could you could penetrate to this to this place for a short time attested that it was real in some sense. You know, I mean, the whole question of is it real? Is it neurochemistry? Is it is it really a place? Is it a another? Is it really another dimension? I mean, I don't think that those uh, those issues are resolved even to this day. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what your experience with these things has been if you've ever taken DMT, but I I I, I have, and I yeah. had two. I, I took it about six times, and only uh -huh. one of the, one of them was was just beyond description horrific the other five or three or four or whatever were amazing and what what happened to me was that first of all the power of it as you said yes made, yeah. made like made like surgic acid seem like you know uh, mickey mouse and it only right. lasted a short time so uh, no matter how alienated or or sort of distressed you were it went away pretty quickly but what i mm -hmm. do remember i there was a, a phrase you used in the book which really hit it for me when you called it hilarious ecstasy Hilarious ecstasy. Hilarious ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it it yeah, ecstasy, as you know, from the root of the word, means standing outside, right? Outside of ecstasis means literally standing outside, and, and if DMT exemplifies that, it certainly does. It it's standing outside any reference frame that you know. It's Ecstasy, as, as Gordon Wasson was fond of pointing out, ecstasy is not fun. You know, these are not places you go for recreation because, well, for one thing, they're terrifying. You know, I mean, I, I do not casually reach for the DMT pipe, you know. I mean, uh, right. I, I, I never did, and I, I do even less now in, the, in a certain sense. I actually... Uh, but but one one property of DMT once you're in it once you've actually crossed the threshold and and made the commitment to, um, you know to to take it is that you're reassured and and it's like you get the feeling, um, that it's okay and and there are actually these these entities there these these intelligences these elf machines or whatever they are that are reassuring you that everything is okay. Yeah, we know it's we know it's weird, but just just go with it. You know, you're in no danger. So anxiety goes away. There really isn't much anxiety for that for that period. And uh, uh, you know, you're way beyond worrying about those sorts of things. And and when those concerns start coming back onto your radar, am I really gonna be okay? Is this hurting me? Am I going to survive this? All this stuff. You, you, you realize you're already on the way down. You know, I mean, I mean, you're you're already reintegrating and asking all these sort of you know real world questions. But there is a certain there is a sense of of happiness and 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 ecstasy and and uh, you know it's extremely amusing. Um, they're cartoon like. They're funny. Um, what can you say? You know, they're, that's just how they are. Uh, and, and, and the same, uh, you know, the same quality of, of the experience, I, I think it's not limited to DMT. I think there is, there is a, what I, what I call the tryptamine dimension and, and mushrooms are, 
part of that. Mushrooms and DMT are very, very close chemically. And with mushrooms, it's much more stretched out. But you also get this feeling of hilarity and elfin mischievousness almost, you know, and and the the Mazatecs, uh, you know, that use mushrooms shamanically, they call them, you know, the little children, you know, and they are children. They're they're uh, you know they're they're mischievous and and uh, and elfin almost. Then you've got ayahuasca, which is which is also DMT, right? But it's DMT orally potentiated by the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So again, instead of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, it's four to five hours. The whole experience is stretched out. It pre presents itself also as an entity, uh, but it, it's a distinctly feminine entity. Uh, for most people, it's very feminine. And often, you know, it can be terrifying too. Um, um, but it has a different demeanor, a different character. It's, it's not so, you know, it's not so hilarious in some ways. It's more serious in some ways. I mean, I, I guess it's the difference between, you know, being a childlike entity and being somebody like, you know, your mother <laughs> or your, or maybe more appropriately, maybe your grandmother you know, who bricks no, no nonsense and, and expects you to, you know, pay attention. This is important. Pay attention. You get that feeling with ayahuasca. At the same time, you get the feeling that you are in a, a place, you know, with a extremely uh, wise entity, whether that's a mushroom or, 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 uh, or a feminine type entity more more than you get with DMT. I I will say. I mean the, the and all of this has got to be. Well, again, nobody knows. I mean, if you, I mean, a reductionist scientist would say, well, these these are just aspects of your personality that are they're splitting themselves off, presenting themselves, reflecting back on you the experiencer as though they are not part of you, but they have to be part of you, right? Where else is this coming from? But then if you talk to a shaman, the shaman will say, well, no, why is that the case? I mean, it is as you, as you experience it, there's a world of disincarnate entities out there. There's, you know, uh, hyperspace is, uh, is, uh, crowded with, uh, with minds and, uh, uh, you can uh, connect with these minds and uh, they're not you or they're not. So who knows? Again, I, I think that I do not think that mm. science can really settle this issue right now. Dennis, I have a question back then when, so you, when you were doing and you really got into and uh, DMT and so on, what, what was the day to day experience after, you know, much you have taken taken it many times and experienced you know what you're speaking of many times how did it and how did it start to transform your day-to-day -day life related to uh, just the most simple um, you know compassion love you know those simple uh, quote-unquote spiritual terms but they are at being at ease with whatever came your way, how how did this affect that? All of that. 
Well, I think uh, I think I think DMT itself didn't so much do that. I think I think that ayahuasca mushrooms have much more of a, a sort of um, influence on uh, on those things, uh, love and compassion and and a sense of trans a sense of being part of a cosmic uh, you know a, a cosmic mystery something mm-hmm. i mean you know the characteristic uh, effects of psychedelics is you feel you feel at one with everything it almost mm-hmm. it almost sounds like a cliche but one of the things you you understand from this or that you bring back with it with you is the idea that you know number one we we are very limited beings in our in our normal everyday consciousness and we need to acknowledge that and realize the limitations of our knowledge and we also along with that we need to be humble um you know in in a sense that we need to not get too full of ourselves. And this is a lesson that ayahuasca especially uh, reemphasizes to me and and to a lot of people all the time. It's like, you know, remember, you don't know shit. You Mm -hmm. don't know shit, you know? Mm. And you have to say, well, actually, you're right. I don't know shit. (laughs) I don't know if you can use that on a podcast, but, but, you know, the... Yes, we can. (laughs) You can. I want yeah. to quote something back at you, Dennis, which you wrote in the but, book, which I love. You said, which connects with what you just said. You said, you seize control of the machinery that generates reality. Reality becomes whatever you want it to be. Now, someone could take that as being just, you know, dilettantism, but I know what you're talking about. And, and I'd like you to expand upon that a little bit, both from a, an objective, if you can be, you know, scientific, analytic, even reductionist point of view, and, a, and a, a subjective spiritual point of view. Creating reality, is it real? Well, yeah. I mean, here you're, you're really getting into some, some deep uh, metaphysical and philosophical waters because I don't think we can say right now. I mean, we know, if just, just forget the psychedelic experience for a minute. We know that we live that what we call ordinary reality and you know what we perceive on a on a day-to-day minute by minute basis doesn't resemble reality at all it's a hallucination it's a dream it's a movie our brains take in information from from the external world through sensory channels don't do things to it, you know, process that through the associative centers and essentially <clears throat> generate what I've called, you know, the, the reality hallucination or the serotonin hallucination or, or you know, they generate a, a model of reality. And that's the model that we inhabit. Reality itself, physics tells us we know enough from our instruments of measurement and so on that that uh, the external real world it's out there somewhere and in some ways it it you know it it it, it doesn't really resemble the world that we inhabit we have to synthesize our reality 
in order to survive, in order to move, you know, within this reality, the model that we create has a certain survival value. And, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't really, it's not reality. It's a, it's a, a model of reality that is more or less useful. And then we can come along and, and we can change the channel. You know, we can change, we can take a drug and we can look at another channel or we can meditate or we can experience sleep, for example. We can alter, uh, you know, our states of awareness are modulated by our physiology in lots of ways. So we can alter reality within, within limits uh, and experience these other modalities as well and and i think that the the uh you know the i think a main challenge for neuroscience and all this inter all this interest right now in trying is trying to relate we can say a lot about what the brain does but crossing making that connection between what the brain does what parts of the brain light up when you're having a mystical experience and you're in an fmri machine or something like that you can say well you know the frontal cortex is lit up the limbic system is a lot of activity there how do you cross that threshold to what you're experiencing your your self being in the world that's the key challenge for neuroscience in this century, and I don't know that it's up to it. I don't know that we'll ever be able to, to uh, you know, to answer those questions, uh, you know. And 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 then you've got this whole other perspective. You've you've got the neuroscience perspective, which is the brain generates reality, and and that's that's what we inhabit. Then you've got the more shamanic perspective, which is basically that mind is uh, a fundamental property of existence. A fundamental, it, it, it precedes everything, you know. And 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 what what our brains are are basically not not generators of consciousness, but detectors of of mind, which is a property uh, that's built into the structure of reality, just like, just like you know the the the, the quantum, um, you know quantum properties or the what what the old physicists used to talk about about the ether. It's a property of uh, the space time continuum, really. And if you look, as you well know, if you look at Eastern traditions and all this, that's that's basically what they're saying. That you know, uh, in the beginning was mind, and and that predates everything. Question is, how do you approach that experimentally? How do you actually nail that down? And I think that's how how do you? I don't know how you do. You know, I, I I'm going to bring up something and somebody uh, Ramdas, um, because it occurs to me. Of course, you know, we all know how much work he and Tim Leary did back in the right. day. Right. And um so just just to sort of reflect on on something. He got to the point. I I remember he um I mean two th he when we were in India, we were in India together. He would tell stories of uh you know, the things that he the experiments some of the experiments that he and Leary did. 
mm-hmm. you know, one of them was going into a room in Millbrook for a week with enough DMT acid and everything and just to see what would happen, you know, those kinds of experiments. <laughs> right. And uh, and another was uh, flying an, an airplane uh, completely, you know, on a lot of white lightning uh, and uh, not, you know, becoming part of the thing and eventually landing it, I mean, alone. So... Really mm-hmm. insane stuff um, that we'd look back on now and go, wow. Uh, but at the same time, I, what he says he came to was he he would get to this place and then he'd have to come back from the from whatever the place was, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And there were so many different places that he he would visit, inner and outer. Right. And he said, but I I was not satisfied that I had a roadmap to consciousness. So I went to India to try and find that map. And he went there as a Buddhist. I mean, he was mm-hmm. totally interested. You know, that was the the most connective thing for him in terms of reading about a map, you know, especially the Tibetans, right? Right. So right. he went there and, you know, as we, all of us that have read Be Here Now know, he met his guru, uh, mm-hmm. which is our guru, and he was transformed by something which he would call now um, way more permanent in that, you know, he these experiences he had uh, with psychedelics, he said, prepared him to be able to, f- to uh, receive what this thing was, you know, and he calls it, you know, in its most, I mean, it's, these terms are very, very hard to use language to actually uh, describe anything like this, and I, I can relate with this very well, but mm-hmm. unconditional love, and that he had never experienced that uh, in his life prior, not by family, parents, or not by anything. And, uh, and the understanding that that consciousness had been there for all previous incarnations and all future ones, which mm-hmm. is something that that same thing happened to all of us when we went there. So that uh, suddenly he felt uh, he had a roadmap to consciousness. How, can you just talk about your own experience and and, and, and working with Terence and, and, and relate it to that underlying thing that you do get to when you, uh, you know, get to a certain point on a psychedelic? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Terence and I, later in life you know we didn't really work together on psychedelics that much i mean he was doing his thing and and was was a public figure and talking about it and i was more or less playing out my my own scientific role and Mm. and trying to be credible on that and and you know but we were continued to be united by you know, a common interest in these things, uh, in psychedelics, um, you know, the intense period that we spent together exploring this, it was, was basically when we went to South America to look for, uh, you know, as I said, we thought DMT was the ultimate mystery. We thought DMT was the Holy grail. 
you know, and, and what what and, and a lot of the ideas actually that that uh, you know that were influential to us at that time were Jungian ideas and and alchemical ideas and, and this kind of thing. Mm. So we were on a quest because we thought DMT is the old. We really did think it was the that it was some sort of ultimate answer, but we were also disappointed in some ways that it was so short and that the DMT experience, you know, when it was smoked was totally overwhelming, totally transcendent, and you couldn't bring a lot back from it. Mm. You could not say much other than holy shit, what was that? You know, I mean, holy, holy moly, you know, what the hell was that? And <laughs> But you didn't, and that was our, 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 our desire to find a, a more, uh, to be able to find something where you could spend more time in that place and kind of look around and get your, get your sea legs, as it were, get oriented. And so you could actually understand more about what was, uh, what was really going on in that dimension. And we thought of it as a dimension. And so that was our motivation to go to South America was to look for initially for this orally active form of, of, uh, of DMT in this obscure plant, Ukuhe and, in from Verola, and at that time nobody knew anything about the ayahuasca admixture plants. We knew about ayahuasca, but that work uh, about the uh, monoamine oxidase interaction and the potentiation of the DMT in the admixture plants that wasn't really uh, that really hadn't been published at that time, uh, and so we were. Uh, you know, we weren't even looking for that. We were looking for this ukuhe. When we got to La Chirera, there were these mushrooms everywhere. And again, we, in a way, we failed to understand. We were looking for the perfect orally active form of DMT, where you could spend a long time in that place and you could really come out of it with something. Turns out that is what mushrooms are. I mean, they're the perfect orally active. They are a form of DMT, and they're orally active. Psilocin and DMT are like one one atom different from each other. And it's the, I don't know if you know your chemistry, but it's that substitution on the four position of the of the psilocin molecule that makes it orally active. That's the only difference from DMT. Mm. When we got to La Chirera, these mushrooms were all over the place, and we knew what they were because we'd done our homework. We'd never taken them before, but we knew they were psilocybin. We knew they were probably great, and and in fact, they were, and, and we started taking them, but we were using them in a very recreational way. We had no idea what we were. It was kind of like, well, these are here. We'll have fun with these while we wait for the real mystery to show up. And we thought the real mystery would come in the form of an informant who knew how to make this ukuhe. Well, eventually that did happen. But when we finally found ukuhe and it took a while, um, it was very disappointing. It wasn't that active. It wasn't that interesting. But when we got to La Chirera, there were all these mushrooms which were definitely active 
and very quickly uh, kind of took over the conversation. And it was like a conversation. We started eating these things all the time and in rather high doses. And all these ideas started, uh, you know, downloading into our consciousness and our conversation about what you could do if you did certain things. You could actually conduct a biophysical experiment that would transform your your uh, your DNA. And, you know, I don't know, you've read The Invisible Landscape, you've read my book, so I, I don't want to get into it or otherwise we'll never get out of it. But I, I guess with respect to what, you asked me about, we weren't really looking for cosmic consciousness or enlightenment or, or anything like that. That wasn't really what it was leading us to. We were more like engineers. We were more like technicians. We wanted to build a starship, you know, and the, the starship it, uh, or maybe more accurately, the philosopher's stone. I mean, remember we were we were steeped in alchemy, and the the notion of the philosopher's stone is just one of many uh, sort of archetypal metaphors that represent the ultimate artifact, right? And we were we wanted to construct the ultimate artifact, a, a, an actual object. Right, a, a machine, a machine that was made out of mind and matter, made out of our minds that you could actually see it. It was external, and you it, it would respond to your your thoughts, and uh, and it would be literally the ultimate artifact because because you know the 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 philosopher's stone, the the starship, the UFO. Uh, you know, the resurrection body, all of these ideas that permeate history and metaphysics, they're all, they all boil down to the same thing. And they boil down to the idea of a transformed organism, in a sense, that is, that is immortal and that can do anything within the realm of imagination. So, so we were, you know, we were approaching that in that way and and obviously uh you know we were deluded we were completely deluded but this is what the mushroom was insisting that that we should be doing and it was it was very much very matter of fact about it so our approach I guess I guess what I can say is our approach to all this was more informed by alchemy than it was by uh, uh, Eastern metaphysics. Right? We were not looking for a a uh, revelation and a, and a, a, a sort of a, an enlightenment or samadhi or a realization of cosmic consciousness. Uh, we were building a tool, and uh, that's how we understood it. But I might interrupt by saying that in the book you talk about drinking Hawaska tea mm -hmm. and in that, in that particular moment uh, you describe extremely cogently I thought 
in something you can't describe at all, which is you became disembodied. You flew over the Amazon. You were thousands of miles away from the Earth. You were looking right. down on the planet, and then suddenly right. you were underground in the roots right. of, the, of the mushrooms, experiencing being a, a water molecule. Now, someone listening to this who doesn't know anything about this is just going to go, "I let me. Can I just turn on CNN, please?" But for the rest of us <laughs> who had this, who had similar experiences, not with the kind of 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 shall we say, you know, structure that you had, but certainly we had the experiences. When you had those cosmic experiences, um, wasn't that completely transformative in terms of the way you saw the universe working? And that in other words, we yeah. are capable inside of us, we are capable of space travel without a spaceship. Yeah, well, yes, those were, but you have to understand that experience was years later. I mean, that didn't happen until 1991, you uh -huh. know, that experience uh -huh. with Luska. And by that time, I, you know, we had, uh, you know, uh, we had sort of uh, at least, you know, I mean, we tried this experiment at La Chirera and it obviously didn't did not work, you know, it didn't work because it couldn't work. It would violate all physical laws. What happened was not a change in the structure of space-time, which we were trying to bring about. And, you know, you can talk about the ego inflation. I mean, clearly we had messianic complexes <laughs> going, but, uh, you know, it brought about a transformation in us. And and the the Waska uh, vision about photosynthesis did came many years later, and that was a vision that was more about uh, a mystical revelation. I mean, I'm a I'm a biochemist. I'm and I'm a biologist, and I I am not particularly. I mean, I grew up Catholic, but I rejected all that stuff years ago, you know. And but but I am a I'm a, a, a pantheist, I guess, if you want to use the term. I I believe that everything is alive. I think that nature is sacred. And I think that uh, this is what Ayahuasca affirmed to me in that experience and, and affirms to many people. I mean, many people come away from these psychedelic experiences, and especially Ayahuasca, uh, with a renewed reverence for nature and a feeling that, you know, uh, we, we really have to... Uh, wake up about what we're doing to the planet and we have to re-understand our uh, relationship to nature. We have to understand that nature, you know, we don't own nature. It's not here to serve us. We are here, if anything, to nurture nature in the way that nature nurtures us. And I think, I think a lot of uh, you're, you're seeing this, uh, you know, this emergence of this perception in uh, you know, in mass consciousness and the whole environment, you know, and uh, I think ayahuasca is, is contributing to that. That's one reason why hmm. it's becoming so, uh, so interesting, why there's to a lot of people, people are going down to South America to experience ayahuasca and they, they don't know why they just know that they want a genuine, meaningful experience you know you call it a mystical experience or a religious experience or a transcendent experience they want 
they want a meaningful experience. And our culture, our civilization is, you know, there are no meaningful experiences anymore, right? I mean, religion, it's a joke, you know? Uh, there's no uh, genuine feeling, you know, religions are political institutions that are that are basically, I mean, I'm talking about institutionalized religions here. You know, they, they become political institutions that are basically designed to bludgeon people into towing the line, into a certain set of behaviors and, you know, sit down, shut up, don't question the doctrine, don't question any of that and just be a good Dogen, you know, and people sense that, you know, that's hollow. They're, they're hollowed out in terms of any um, actual uh, connection to a real mystery, a, a numinous mystery, using that, that mm. Jungian term mm. again, term again, yes. you know, yes. the Mysterium Tremendum. And the Mysterium Tremendum, which by the, by the term, you know, it's something that is mysterious and tremendous and terrifying you cannot look upon it because it is real and but religions are all about they are they all want to lay claim to this thing they want to control it and they want it but they don't want their members to go anywhere near it you know, I think that uh, it's uh, too dangerous. Our yeah. the people that are tune that tune in to what we do here on Mind Rolling Podcast, uh, Dennis, yeah. I think are so uh, absolutely converted uh, on that one, as we all were in you know when we came up and and yeah. found these psychedelics. So right. we always talk, uh, David and I, about the parallels of this generation and and uh, what we went through, late 60s, early 70s. There right. are many, many, many parallels. And, and I think you're right that um, there is a, a large uh, quotient of people who are interested to have a genuine experience. And once they do, they the connection that they feel uh, uh, to the interconnectedness of everything yes. and then yes. especially nature and now looking at what is going on with the environment yeah david uh, has uh, on many podcasts in his own experience working with you know people of that generation and myself you know we experience that david listen though you got to say uh, we got to do the amazon uh, oh, yeah. well, thing we, here uh, please yeah, will you uh, yeah partners well, uh, Partners, Dennis, we, we have to just do a little it's our commercial. little commercial. It's very appropriate. Oh. It's Amazon.com who are our affiliates. Oh, because all right. Well, by all means, plug my book. It's it's yeah, on we, Amazon. <laughs> we, we will do that. We will do that in a moment. Okay. Yeah, Amazon, which is so synchronistic, if that's the word, because much of what Terence and Dennis McKenna's work is about was done close to the Amazon basin and in the Amazon basin. But anyway, that's a whole other coincidence. Amazon.com is our affiliate. We have a portal. On our website, mindrollingpodcast.com, if you go through that portal, uh, you will buy whatever you want in the same manner, not paying anything extra. We get a small percentage, and it helps us survive. So you can get Dennis McKenna's fascinating autobiography and more than autobiography, tons of stuff in there, rich, rich, rich stuff. You can get it on Amazon as Kindle or a book, whatever. Uh, do that and go through Please. our portal. 
Uh, please go there. And uh, other works by Dennis and Terence are on there. True Hallucinations is on there. Many other marvelous books by them. And you should do it through the Amazon portal. It helps us. It helps you. It helps Dennis. My goodness, everybody's helped. The other thing is uh, Amazon owns audible.com. And we're also an affiliate of audible.com. So you can get spoken word books, a uh, free trial of a month. You get a free book. If you don't want to get anything else, you can stop until you get a free book. Uh, that's great. And they, we also get a, a, a small amount from Audible every time you buy a book. So please, those who are listening, uh, do this because, uh, you know, it helps us and it helps us continue this podcast. That's it. Back to Dr. McKenna. That's very well. We, yeah. we, uh, we, I we have to say, time, yeah, we, yeah, we are uh, just uh, getting near the end of our time here. So we got to kind of close out. But uh, you have a question, David? Well, I, I, I just wanted to... A quote that you, 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 that Terence McKenna said, which I love, which is, I wanted you to just mention this. And you had what you called a quantum entanglement with your brother, so you can speak to this. Terence said, mm -hmm. the, universe, the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. Yes. I think that's an amazing, just elaborate on that for a moment, would you? Well, that was actually, a, that's a quote from J.B.S. Haldane, and, and that oh. was one of his, one of Terence's favorite quotes, and, and mine too as, as well, because I think, you know, in a nutshell, that encapsulates, you know, where we find ourselves existentially, right? I mean, the, the lesson that I get from ayahuasca and all these psychedelics, but ayahuasca has, you know, lately become my, you know, my main teacher, I guess. I certainly respect mushrooms and I use them and I get a lot out of them, but I, I, I use ayahuasca on a much more regular basis. But, but the lesson that comes from all of these things is, for me, it's number one, you know, there's no excuse for arrogance because you don't know shit. Right. So that's that's number one. Don't get full of yourself. Realize how little, you know. And the, but the other side of that coin is. Revel in or or take take pleasure in the fact that we do know so little meaning. Uh, so that means the, the universe is a much more marvelous place than we can ever imagine, you know, and that's basically what JBS Haldane said. It's much stranger than you think it is. And it's, uh, and it's, it's great. It's, it's miraculous. It's wonderful. And, and, uh, because there's no end to learning, right? If you, if you, if you reach a point where you say, well, I, I basically, I've studied all my life. I've studied all these things. I still don't know anything. That means, you have a whole lot to learn. You have a, not only a lifetime, but lifetimes upon lifetimes of learning and exploring. Well, for a, a curious person, you know, who's motivated by, by wonder, uh, that's, that's paradise. That's a miracle. And, and that's kind of where, uh, you know, where, where I try to live my life from that perspective. Mm. I get up every morning, you know, Damn grateful I'm still here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Looking forward to whatever the day is going to reveal. I mean, I have aches and pains and complaints and problems like everybody else, but basically, we live in a marvelous, miraculous, 
universe. And uh, we should just uh, be thankful for that. That's uh, that's incredible. And mm. when you think about how unlikely that all is, mm. you know, um, the, and that's, the the miracle is the mystery. The miracle is the mystery. Yeah. That's good. Dave, and I, I, I think Ram Dass's perception uh, with all of this, when you really think about it, be here now. Yeah, you don't have any other choice because that's what's here. Yeah. You know, all the rest of this stuff is uh, your memories, your anticipation of the future. Everything else is a construct. But what we can say is that here we are in the present moment. Yes. And yeah. Well, uh, that's full circle from where we started out with, and yeah. and sir, it's it's full circle from you know the our own introduction to psychedelics and how they created that transformation. And and my my personal experience is that that uh, I was able to have the tiniest tiny little speck of an understanding, and and, and then get to the same point here as uh, Dennis is saying. Well, that, that's is, what we all have. Yeah. That's what we all have. Yeah. Really. And, and just know that. We, we have a yeah. speck. But that speck is enough to give us the faith and right. trust to be able to absolutely uh, be of some use to our uh, neighbor <laughs> at any one time. Mm-hmm. David, um, we're, this is it. Uh, we're, 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 we're at our sponsor's allotted time right now. And yeah. uh, so, uh, Dennis, I want to thank you so much. Uh, yeah. for this just fascinating uh, stuff and everybody out there get this book because it's got it's as I said in the very beginning without saying anything just rich I think rich is a great uh, it's synonym very humane, for it. very humane well, Raga. It, it tells you a lot about private personal things that interconnect with the scientific and exploratory and psychedelic parts of the book it's a very multidimensional book right Dennis yeah, pretty much. It's personal and very speculative and all that. And obviously, you know, if you haven't figured it out by now, you, you, I tend to go on and I tend to get carried away. And I'm sorry for that. Oh, no, no, no. We've enjoyed. No, no. We've enjoyed. in edgewise, but what that means is we can circle back on this yes, anytime. Again. And I, yes. I'd love to come on the show again. Uh, I, I oh, always, always enjoy you. these conversations. Great. We, we'd thank love you. to we, have you. you. Yeah, we want you back. Thank you, well, Dennis McKenna. Great. All, all right. All right. Have Everybody, a great afternoon. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Go to mindrollingpodcast.com and see everything Dave's doing up there with uh, uh, his uh, wonderful articles and so on. And uh, we will see you next time. Right. Ciao. Okay. Ciao, ciao.